0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we heard from the author of an expose on Mexican drug cartels in Chicago, spoke about an important screenwriter, and discussed the sinister reach of the white evangelical movement. All this, plus size matters, the Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? only on the 150th edition of the Lumpin' Week in Review for the week of November 1st, 2019. Chuck Mart spoke to Tad DeLay on the psychology and anti-politics of evangelicals. Author of the book, Against, What Does the White Evangelical Want?, DeLay discusses the alternative histories and theories that white evangelicals have wrapped themselves in, all to create a religion that actually preserves and exalts race. This is Hell, airs every Sunday at 11am.
1: Who is the us that evangelicals want to destroy, because I'm afraid that I am in that us. (laughs)
2: I'm afraid you are, Chuck. I I think that evangelicalism wants to assert a type of hegemony that is not only sadistic towards all those who are not part of it in group, but also I think it's just as important to recognize that there is a certain, not just sadism, but also a masochism, a type of self-destructiveness. There's a type of enjoyment of anxiety, a type of enjoyment of shame that we need to take seriously as we consider this type of uh, political coalition, which I'm defining Uh, as a type of sect of Christianity, right? Not quite a different denomination, but not a different religion, certainly, but a type of sect that I see as a type of improvisation, a theological improvisation around whiteness, right? So all of the doctrines can be abandoned and discarded, no matter how much they insist they are important. What really matters is the, the core of whiteness and the type of social hierarchy that's being clung to within that. You
1: mentioned sadism and masochism, and throughout your writing you talk about the intertwining of white evangelicalism with things like nationalism and privilege and hate and white supremacy. Is the underlying current in all of those things, even in the masochism, is the underlying current within white evangelicalism then the attractiveness to sadism?
2: I actually think that it's actually the opposite and I want to kind of be cautious here on how I frame this because there's, you know, if we're talking in in, in sexual terms, there was nothing wrong with like sadomasochism, right? But there's a type of enjoyment that's being produced by not just uh, provoking pain so much as provoking a type of anxiety in the other, right? So we see this a lot on the right with talk of triggering, right? It's it's an enjoyment of provoking anxiety in the person that you're talking with. However, I do think it's actually important to clarify by that my, my intuition is that white evangelicals are not so much willing to suffer, uh, for instance, lack of health care so that they can deprive other people of health care. My intuition is that there's actually something primarily destructive that's being, uh, you know, drives in within all of us, right? There's nothing distinct about their, their physiology or psychology. It's just that this is an ideological disposition that enhances or augments the worst impulses in all of us. But I want to say that actually, I think the masochism is primary and the sadism is secondary. So it's not that they're depriving themselves so that they can deprive others more. It's that they're depriving everybody because deep down there is an enjoyment of this state of turmoil, right? Um, I don't get to enjoy my sexuality. I don't get to enjoy cultural power. I I see the, the world that I feel is organized against me and I want to use conspiracy theories to kind of interpret that so I don't have to kind of plainly see what's in front of me. Does that make sense?
1: It does make sense, but I, I just cannot wrap my mind around the idea of being attracted to provoking anxiety in others. Uh, it, what does that reveal about white evangelicalism, if that is the thing that is your, really your driving core to provoke anxiety in others?
2: Well, uh, it's certainly something that should concern us all, right? It's right? We're not talking about something that can be argued with or reasoned with, right? Um, this I sometimes kind of argue that, uh, you know, this is what I find precisely concerning when Democrats try to appeal to some sort of religious liberalism or religious left or whatever. Um, you will not, as a, as a liberal, be able to brutalize or kill enough people to attract this coalition away from, from where they're voting now, right? Um, but maybe, I mean, one type of story, I, I know a, a guy Probably many of us know a character like this um, who uh, was uh, very much against the health exchange marketplace when it came out in, in, what was it, 2014 or so. And he eventually signs up just in time, uh, and there's a diagnosis of a serious illness right around the corner. So he has health care just as he's diagnosed with this critical illness, and nevertheless is an avid Trump supporter and gets really excited about any of these efforts to chip away at Obamacare or eliminate Medicare or whatever else. Now, there's one way of interpreting that, that this, this character is just a fool and doesn't really understand the consequences of what he's doing. But another way of thinking about it, I think, is that there is an enjoyment of just kind of rage at Obama the first black president you know seen as this kind of outsider figure within this uh this southern coalition but also i think that there's i think that when we think about how a certain type of white male reacts to changes that are happening in the country demographically we also kind of need to take seriously the idea that dying is worth the risk for them depriving their own access to healthcare in the moment that they need it most it most is is worth the risk in order to be sedated to somebody else right so we uh, very often kind of think of our problem as a battle of ideas of foolishness versus smartness and I want to say that whether, whether we're talking healthcare or climate collapse uh, you, you are not going to be able to win a battle uh, if you just simply interpret your opponent as duped when they are um, voting away their access to healthcare or voting away to like voting away breathable air for their future generations interpret that as a sign of intent right they are enjoying something and we need to get better at locating the counterintuitive locations of that enjoyment.
1: And that reminds me of how Democrats seem to be confused. Liberal Democrats seem to be confused following the election of President Trump. And that was how can these people, these poor Appalachians be voting against? It was a horrible stereotype to come up with. Mm-hmm. What they did. Uh, Uh, Why were they voting against their own self interests So they are clearly you understand them as not voting against their own self-interest. What would you say to a Democrat who said that they are voting against their own self-interest? How would you tell them to change their perspective so they could understand the evangelical vote better?
2: Well, I think I'd follow your recent guest Corey Robin here and say that there's a there's a type of reactionariness to conservative thought that is about establishing and preserving a certain hierarchy. So, for example, the classic way this works in sort of racialized American politics is that the one percent needs to get the uh, poor whites to not identify with poor people of color, but instead to identify as white. Right now, I grew up in uh, I live in Denver now, and I'm at the university teacher but I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas in very Christianized Republican territory so I feel like I understand this quite intuitively but I think the data bears this out right the 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 inclination towards racial hostility or hostility towards immigrants tells us a, a lot about like the types of dispositions that people within this coalition will take with regard to the other
0: John and Jamie chatted with Josh Shishuan about the Chicago International Music Festival and his time in touring bands. Shishuan discussed the power of films, how he stumbled into being a musician, and why festivals matter. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, Drive Time. Right
3: now in the studio is Josh Shequan. Josh, how you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for joining Welcome us today, Josh, man. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks so, for having me. So Josh is a musician. He is also the mastermind behind the Chicago International Movies and Music Festival. That's not a festival anymore. It's more That's now.
4: Right. Well, it's just ongoing programming so mm-hmm. far. Uh, produ- producing a big festival like that is a very, very heavy lift. Yeah, and so sort of evolving and seeing where it's going to go next.
3: Yeah, when t- talk a little bit about that because I mean I, I've done some festivals and and when I did them I dreaded doing them and then after yeah. I did it I said I would never ever do them You're again. You talking then, about
5: a Bridgeport Gap Beef and yeah gets and sliced? then
3: and then people people suckered me and I did another <laughs> one this and last <laughs> and beef weekend and and I just wanted to slip my wrist you back in. Yeah, so what. <laughs> how did, how did, first of all, how'd you get involved in this before we get into the whole music thing?
4: Sure. So years ago, about 2008, um, my then neighbor who's a filmmaker, his name's Ilka Davidoff approached me, uh, with this idea of a music based film festival and, um, sort of right timing for me. I was getting off the road. I was in the bank called the Ms. Yep. Mm-hmm. For a number of years, we basically were on tour for 10 years and everybody was sort of getting out hey, of that, that mode. Yeah. I mean, it was great. And then it sucked. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, we hit our stride in like 2016 and everybody stopped buying records.
3: Yep, that's a great time to hit your stride. Yeah, it was perfect. You know, I saw a stat yesterday that Post Malone is the number one artist in America. Guess how many albums he sold to hit number one? He had 108 million streams. It was in the New York Times today and he sold 900 physical copies. 900? 900 physical copies. He's the number (laughs) one artist in America. Probably
5: most vinyl. (laughs) We've kind of talked about this, this evolution. So anytime we've been talking to people in the Chicago music scene, and you've been kind of through the, the, the whole ringer? spectrum of it. <laughs> well, I mean, kind of starting out doing DIY sure. stuff, being a, a professional recording artist, mm-hmm. and even being on, uh, which you'll get into, I'm sure, some, some divas uh, backgrounds. <laughs> um, but uh, but thank you, first of all. You have sent us um, a bunch of folks from SimFest, and we've had a lot of fun Great. interviewing people every year. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite uh, films uh, uh, throughout the years was uh, about Rock Study. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, one, one of your first sim fests. But For sure. it's certainly Long been a huge though. evolution of the festival as well.
4: Yeah. I mean, it started out as basically a DIY festival in a church. We took over on uh, North Avenue in Bell. And uh, it was an old Norwegian Lutheran church that we took over top to bottom and, like, put a big uh, screening room in the uh, – in the rectory there and then downstairs we, we do stuff like you're doing here and like poster exhibits and rock posters and like had a bar and performances and stuff like that so it was very much like how can we get chicago to participate meanwhile it was an international film festival so we were taking you know submissions and bringing in films from like on average about 25 countries every year so it really allowed us to bring in lots of eclectic programming mm-hmm. and do live screen uh live scoring to films and, uh, you know, every year it was just like a, another huge learning curve. And uh, eventually we operated in about 33 venues across the city. And I partnered with the city of Chicago, partnered with City Winery, and part- tons of partnerships, tons of sponsorships. And it just became a behemoth. Right. And uh, meanwhile, the people who were organizing it were all artists. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and artists all completely suck. Completely bootstrapping mm-hmm. and learning as we. As we go, <laughs> like fixing the plane and building the plane as we're, as right. we're flying it with no notion of landing it. Uh-huh. Just uh, get up in the air and go was the was the ethos. So
5: The one premiere that comes to mind that I think Jamie would be particularly interested in, given his time in California, was the uh, Sunset Strip uh, premiere. Oh, yeah. That was a pretty neat film.
4: Yeah, it was cool. It was a cool event that we, uh, we brought that uh, when it first sort of started to get going. And uh, yeah, we, we were able to do cool stuff like that. We had the, uh, this premiere event um, on a rooftop downtown that was right around Lollapalooza. <clears throat> so we were able to partner with Lala, And, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, just the subject matter was such that Chicago and the music industry in Chicago really embraced it. So we got off the ground really quickly. And, um, you know, it was a lot of fun. You know, we did a lot of cool things and uh, learned a ton uh, learned a ton of how not to do things and uh you know we're sort of taking that next step we're mm-hmm. pivoting away from like making a huge festival at this point it may come back it feels like there's still an opening there but um we're trying to figure out sort of how we're going to do it organizationally how we're going to fund it gotcha you know and try to make it a sustainable situation versus a pop-up business right and that's essentially what it came down to
3: well, your next thing is in November. It's on the fourteenth. It's a film uh, called Strange Negotiations. It's about the sure. guy from Peter the Lion, yeah, right? Yeah, David Bazan. Okay, so yeah. that's at Lincoln Hall. Uh, for people that want information, it's uh, at Sim Presents, which is spelled C I M M Presents.org. org. Yeah. Um, I, I was actually really interested. You had the story of which, uh, mm-hmm. who was a. Uh, yeah, we, cool. we have the Numero Group uh, archive playing on and Radio, so yeah. it's it's great hearing that Z Rock and stuff. Uh, did a lot of people come out to that? I didn't even know what was going on, so I probably
4: it was great. You yeah. know, of course, more people came to the concert than they came to the the screening, right? And uh, the concert was amazing. <clears throat> like, right, they were still really cool and kind of this um, really went through the ages too because they they got into disco, which right, right. became a disco band after playing this like. Uh, punk garage rock African Mm -hmm. kind of stuff so uh, yeah man it was really cool
6: 60s or
3: 70s now right
4: yeah and there's just two of them that are are left wow Uh, yeah most of them all
3: died (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately death death comes for all of us (laughs) um before we get off the, the sim and, and get into what you're doing, how did, how did you get involved? I mean, you, you were a working musician. You were a traveling musician. How did you get mm-hmm. involved in the film
7: end of it?
4: Well, again, it, it goes back to my partners and people that um, kind of came up with the concept and brought me in. And we were neighbors. Ilka Davidoff, again, is a filmmaker. And he had been traveling around the world with um, his uh, films. One of them is called Unauthorized and Proud of It. Okay. And uh, it's all about this comic book Um comic book this guy would and i can't remember his name right now but it, he basically would make these uh, comics of unauthorized stories so like he may, had one from prince and he had one from all these artists and hmm. and he ended up de- the, the story is pretty compelling he ended up getting murdered oh wow and it's un- still unsolved so anyway <clears throat> ilko's traveling around the world and seeing that there's music film fest fil- f- film fests around the world and thought that there would be an opening in chicago to do it him and I were collaborating a bunch on different projects. Um, he directed an Ems video and um, we were neighbors and we both liked staying up late and drinking vodka. So it ended up being that, you know, he approached me with the idea and it was just sort of the right time. I had never even been to a film festival before. So of course I said yes. And uh, you know, the next thing you know, we're figuring out how to fundraise and we're figuring out how to make uh, strategic partnerships and, and build venues and do marketing and all of this stuff. and. Uh, that was my f- entree into it and as it went along I kind of realized what kind of a critical role that mm-hmm. uh, the festival can play in uh, giving platforms to sort of unheard voices and uh, bringing to light maybe some stories uh, either of movements or individual musicians uh, that were not going to be seen unless we did it so it became a much bigger idea than it started out for sure <laughs>
0: I-94 spoke to Adina Hoffman, author of Ben Hecht, about the legendary screenwriter turned Zionist. Hoffman discussed Hecht's remarkable reach and career, how he became a late convert to the creation of the State of Israel, and how some of his works became foundational in the film industry. I-94 airs every Sunday at 11 a.m.
3: Tell (laughs) us a little bit about why Ben, first of all, appealed to you as as a subject.
8: Yeah, well, those multitudes um, have a lot to do with it. I mean, I actually, I feel like, I knew Ben Hecht's movies before I had ever heard or registered the name Ben Hecht. Um, I think that's true of anyone who's watched um, movies of a certain you know, Hollywood uh, period. He's pretty much responsible for, for many of, the, of the, the very finest movies ever made and, in fact, entire genres. But it was really, and I actually worked as a film cri- critic um, throughout the 90s, and when I became a little bit more conscious of film history, I was obviously aware of his um, contribution to the movies, but when I began to learn a little more, and in fact to read his wonderful um, uh, memoir, kind of crazy, fantastic, indulgent um, Child of the Century, I realized that for heck, the movies were actually just one small piece of it, and in some ways the piece he was probably less Um, the least proud of Um, you know he was obviously you guys in chicago know um, probably of you know his time in the in the newsrooms of chicago but that's just the start of it, too. He was a novelist, and he was a playwright. He and Charles MacArthur, you know, memorialized, or that's maybe too somber a term, but they they kind of romanticized the figure of that Chicago newspaper man in the front page, which was first a play and then a movie and then was turned into His Girl Friday. Um, so there was all of that. And then on top of it, and and a memoirist, he was a memoirist later, and on top of it, and this is how I sort of persuaded Yale University Press to let me do the book for this Jewish Live series, he was a Jew who claimed to have been... Uh, fairly indifferent um, to his Jewishness um, throughout m- much of the early part of his life, and yes, then he did not keep he
3: kosher, of, as I recall.
8: He certainly did not. And in fact, there are some pictures <laughs> of him under the Christmas tree at the Newberry Library, <laughs> which I did not include in the book. But um, but he was kind of radicalized by the Holocaust, and so he had a whole career as a very flamboyant um, first sort of um, someone who was trying to first raise money for a Jewish army in Palestine. This is in the early forties, and then once it became clear what was happening in Europe. Um, to raise the consciousness of America's Jews and the world, not just the Jews, to what was happening in Europe. Um, And then after the war, this sort of morphed into a very, very um, kind of flamboyant sort of propagandizing for the terrorists of Palestine. He called them my brave friends. Um, So, I mean, to answer your question, I was fascinated by the fact that he could do all of these things and not, you know, just be suffering from some kind of multiple personality disorder because he's very actually consistent as he's doing all of these things. He's kind of juggling all these careers and also all kinds of women. And I mean, there's always a lot going on in his life. And I mean, I myself am someone who has done various things and was a film critic and I've written biographies and essays. And so I identified with that multiplicity, but I also was really fascinated by the fact of this um, Jewish activism of his. And In particular, the stuff um, that had to do with his support of this um, radical right-wing underground, because it's pretty much his politics in terms of the Middle East are approximately the opposite of my own. And, And I'd written a few books in which I deeply identified in political terms with... The person I was writing about or the people I was writing about and I thought it would be a healthy kind of imaginative exercise to see if I could write about someone for whom I have a huge amount of respect and I just got a total kick out of spending time in his company etc cetera, etc cetera. but I also have a really big disagreement with him about that part of the world and about even what it means to be a Jew and I thought it would be kind of an interesting challenge to, to take on someone like that um, so that's the sort of <laughs> that's that's where I started. I mean, once I once I started writing the book, I also realized that one of the one of the bonuses of writing about Hect is that you're not just writing about Hect. He knew everybody. He was friends with the most incredible array of 20th century everybody. personalities. Yeah. Everybody. And so I got to spend time with them too. And um, you know, his archive, which is at the Newberry Library in Chicago, is the, one of the most remarkable archives I've ever set foot in. Um, you know, thank God for his poor wife Rose, his second wife, who she had to put up with a lot of um, you know, he was a hard he was a he was a handful. she was mm-hmm. kinda of handful too. Um, but she saved everything. And so these letters to and from everyone from, you know, like Sandberg and Sherwood Anderson and Kurt Vile and Katherine Hepburn and David O'Seltnik and Menachem Begin, it just I mean it's literally like an entire century. Um, of stuff and they're great letters too. Not just letters, but like hilarious letters and, and um, he was a terrific wit. And so I feel lucky to have had all that time with him but with all these others as well.
7: Size matters, size matters Swift, Kyle Kowski. Hey there Trekker, I see you're working on the old soldering iron there. Shove it, Kyle. Oh, whoa, what's with the hostilities? It's a lovely fall day uh, in the
9: port. I'm sorry, Kyle,
7: it's these f***ing lumpen computers. They keep breaking and it's driving me nuts. And hey, that sounds like you no, need to- no, a- no, 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 Last time we listened to you, our entire server got sent to Latvia. I'm still paying off subscriptions to Jermala Shviete, whatever the hell that is. I think that's a bridal service, but no, I'm telling you, I got this guy here- Hey, what's going on, Jagos? Oh, great mutton, Jeff.
8: I will overlook that remark so that you may admire my fine new Rolex. Uh, uh, uh. Look at it. It's catching the light. It's sparkly.
3: The heck did you get the money for that? Oh, I didn't buy it.
7: Okay, guys, this is great, but I still have to solder this mother f- uh, board back in. I'm telling you, I have met this computer genius, and he can solve the problem here. Are you
8: talking about Cole? Oh, my iPhone has never been better.
7: Yeah, it's Cole. I- 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 my little flipper here can make calls anywhere because of this guy. Hell, that's an old can of shoe polish, not a phone. Now, come on. Ah, shoot, that's me. Hold on. Hello? Uh, yes, this is he. Why yes, I would love to discuss reverse mortgages. That's mortgage. a can of oh yeah. Squatting. Squatting. I'm that's, gonna, that's gonna like, regret this, aren't I? Almost certainly. So this is the home of the computer man, sir. the flying fingers, the technological wizard of Tamara. Ah, uh, this is the old Linus. I heard it, it was infested with rats. Yeah, what's that got to do with computing? <laughs> Nothing. It's just who
9: dares trespass into my arcane sanctuary? Ah, uh, yeah, maybe so. This was a bad idea. Speak your business, mortal, lest I rain brimstone and cyber bolts down upon thine head. Yeah, I
7: mean, you should at least look at the problem. We came all this way. I mean, we, he's we got walked to... across
9: the street, Kyle. Oh, I see now. Once again, the townsfolk of Bridgeport. Crawl to my doorstep, entreating the great computomancer for tech support. Well, if you think it's a poor decision, feel free to exit through the portal to your left. So
8: distrustful, Ah. Jamie.
9: No, by all means, please leave me to my studies. I was embroiled in a friendly psychic duel before you so now, rudely wait. interrupted. Oh,
3: Jesus. Okay, look, here's the
9: laptop. What it's doing is- Silence! My mystical scrying will tell me all that is plaguing your device. Yeah, that's not good. Nitium capenum, What the f- You desired it to run, yes? Now it runs quite well. Um, okay. I'll, <laughs> oh my I God! Know this is I impressive, gotta, but I, I just need out this out thing chairs. to play underwriting, not stand back. Get gallop out. around the room on hooves. Ha! <laughs> you peasants have no grasp on humor, do you? Can you make no time for some simple wizard's comedy? Or are your provincial radio needs so important? Oh,
7: I didn't mean any disrespect at all. Trust me. No,
9: I understand. Clearly, your precious broadcast requires immediate attention. Very well. Allow me to address your concerns properly. Ut
8: versus un proteste et. Virtute, remove! You know, Trekker, we need to work on your interpersonal skills. Are you
3: high? The station robot is racing around the room! On what appears to be spider legs! What the hell am I supposed to do now?
9: How dare you speak to me with such insolence! Insolence. You dare question my eldritch methods? This is a mere, uh, um, arcane difficulty... But you have impunged upon my methods one too many times. Begone, ye mortal. Return to thy I realm and watch. The
7: great wizard is angry.
9: Leave now and take your laptop. Leave now and take your impudence with you. And go. Hey, watch your fingers. maximum vasti. Hey, hey, look sharp. Kyle, I swear to
7: God, I'm absolutely going to kill you. Oh, shit, yeah. this is the future shock. We're chill, everyone. Wait,
8: is that, is that Logan? Oh, man, we haven't seen him since.
6: Episode 34. The Computer Mancer summoned the spirit of the Bridgeport Hyperweb, and that is I. Oh, Well, what have you been doing all this time? Well, mainly avoiding Ed and trying to find more IDM DJs. Jamie really hates that stuff. And while we're on the subject, Jamie, you haven't been nearly evil enough. I'm sorry, boss. Your title is Evil Station Manager. I'm I'm
1: sorry, boss.
6: Don't call me boss. I'm, I'm sorry, boss. Well, let's get this all sorted out. It seems the lumpen laptop was contaminated with the demon from Portsbridge. Did you guys travel to the world of Level Eater without protection?
7: Ah, uh, yeah, that was me.
6: Of course it was. A simple little bit of reversing code, and the lumpen laptop is good as new. For 2010, anyway. Ha ha ha.
8: Hell yeah. Thanks, Logan.
6: And now I must return to my crash somewhere above Phil's. What a hero. Is there anything
3: he can't do? But what are we going to do with the, uh, computomancer?
7: Oh, I've got an idea.
9: That's $11.99. Thanks for shopping at Maria's.
8: Hey, um, excuse me, Logan?
6: What is it, my child?
8: I pawned the tape recorder you gave me, like— I know. Um, but the thing is, the episodes keep getting recorded, like— everything that Kyle and I say shows up on these shows and i haven't even had like a microphone the
6: bridgeport hyperweb knows all and sees all my child go with grace really you should go with grace the copro is out of toilet paper again
10: oh no
3: This week on the Trump Diaries, Democrats get the Mueller report as a judge rules they're conducting a proper impeachment inquiry. Trump calls those against him human scum. Republicans pull a stunt and eat pizza. The World Series crowd calls for Trump to be locked up. And Trump calls Chicago worse than Afghanistan. Hey, thanks for coming. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1,008, October 24th. In a staged confrontation, 30 House Republicans forced entry into a closed-door deposition and refused to leave. A number of the GOP lawmakers already had access to the hearings because they sit on the three committees. Some Republicans, however, brought their cell phones into a secure area. That is a significant violation of House rules, and the room subsequently had to be swept for potential security breaches. The stunt came after Trump asked Republicans to, quote, get tough and fight for him. Ukraine knew that Trump had frozen nearly $400 million in security assistance before the July 25th phone call where Trump pressed President Vladimir Zelensky to investigate the Bidens. Trump and his allies have repeatedly claimed there could not have been any quid pro quo because Ukrainians didn't know the assistance had been blocked. This was untrue. The president of Ukraine was aware of it and why it had been blocked. Meanwhile, the White House's trade representative withdrew Ukraine's trade privileges during the same time period. In late August, Robert Lighthizer pulled Ukraine's trade privileges from a global program after John Bolton told him Trump would oppose anything that benefited Kiev. The U.S. ambassador to the European Union not only knew of a quid pro quo, but had communicated that threat to Ukraine. William Taylor said under oath that on September 1st, Gordon Sondland warned the Ukrainian president's aide that security assistance would not come unless the president committed to pursuing the investigation into Joe Biden's son. Zelensky was so concerned about the pressure from Trump that he met with a small group of advisors spending three hours talking about how they were going to handle the calls for investigations and avoid getting enmeshed in American politics. In a related story, Trump has repeatedly tried to cut foreign aid programs tasked with combating corruption in Ukraine, slashing tens of millions of dollars. Trump claimed earlier this week, quote, I don't care about politics, but I do care about corruption and this whole thing is about corruption. This whole thing, this whole thing is about corruption. Meanwhile, a federal judge ordered the State Department to release Ukraine related records within 30 days, including all calls between Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Rudy Giuliani. Trump said that those against him are human scum. The White House press secretary agreed with him. Stephanie Grisham appeared on Fox and Friends to defend Trump, who had tweeted earlier in the day that the never Trumper republicans are human scum and worse and more dangerous for our country than the do-nothing Democrats. And Trump bragged at a rally that he's building a wall along Colorado's border with Mexico. Colorado does not share a border with Mexico. Trump told a crowd in Pittsburgh the wall will be a really big one that works. You can't get over, you can't get under. Day 1009, October 25th. Democrats got a major win in the courts as a judge ruled the Justice Department must hand over the entire unredacted Mueller report on Russian interference to the House. The judge ruled the House is conducting a proper and legal impeachment inquiry, undercutting key claims made by Trump's allies. U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell rejected the Trump administration's claim the impeachment probe is illegitimate and said the material could help the House substantiate potentially impeachable conduct. Attorney General William Barr's review of the origins of the Russian probe has been transformed into a criminal investigation. U.S. Attorney John Durham is now reviewing the FBI's investigation and looking at whether U.S. government's, quote, intelligence collection activities in the probe was lawful and appropriate. Trump has repeatedly claimed the Russia probe was a witch hunt and a hoax. The move is raising fears that Barr is further weaponizing the Department of Justice against Trump's political opponents. The House Intelligence Committee has issued subpoenas to three Trump officials. Acting Budget Director Russ Vout, Michael Duffy, and T. Elkert Breitbull, who is a counsel of the State Department, were ordered to appear. John Bolton is apparently also negotiating to appear. Tim Morrison, a top advisor on the National Security Council, is slated to appear. He will become the second serving White House official to testify. Rudy Giuliani butt-dialed a reporter and can be heard saying, quote, the problem is we need some money to an unidentified man during the three-minute call. The call came in at 11.07 p.m. and went to voicemail. The reporter for NBC was asleep. Trump ordered all federal agencies not to renew their subscriptions to the New York Times and the Washington Post. Stephanie Grisham claimed that, quote, not renewing subscriptions across all federal agencies will be a significant cost saving. Hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars will be saved. Day 1010, October 26. Trump was booed during game five of the World Series in Washington, D.C. Banners were displayed behind him that read, veterans for impeachment, and the crowd chanted, lock him up, as Trump made an appearance during the fourth inning. Trump said he will veto a bill requiring federal election campaigns to report illicit offers of campaign assistance from foreign governments and their agents. The Trump Organization is exploring selling the lease to the Trump International Hotel in Washington. The company leases the building in the old post office pavilion from the federal government. The hotel could fetch more than $520 million. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross is being investigated for his use of private email for official business. His correspondence included discussions with the European Commission for Trade, a US Ambassadors meeting with German car makers, an event related to billionaire businessman Bill Koch, and meeting requests from a far-right internet troll and a Veterans Affairs Office designed to protect whistleblowers instead stifled claims and retaliated against employees. The VA's Office of Accountability, which was created by Trump, had significant deficiencies including poor leadership and a misunderstanding of its mission. Day 1011, October 27th. American special forces targeted and killed Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, the founder and leader of the Islamic State. Abu Bakr was said to have been trapped by special forces and committed suicide. Trump described al Baghdadi's death as a man, quote, running into a dead-end tunnel, whimpering, screaming, and crying all the way, who died like a dog and a coward. However, the veracity of Trump's statements, which included, quote, it was like watching a movie, were immediately brought into question by the Pentagon, which on the video feed did not show his capture and death. Trump, breaking with protocol, did not give House Speaker Nancy Pelosi or the so-called bipartisan Gang of Eight advance notice of the raid that killed Baghdadi. Trump instead informed Russia about the operation. Trump told reporters, no, I didn't tell Congress I didn't do that. I wanted to make sure this kept secret. I don't want to have men lost and women. We decided not to do that because Washington leaks like I've never seen before. Washington is a leaking machine. In a surprise, GM, Fiat Chrysler and Toyota sided with the Trump administration against California over fuel economy standards for automobiles. The decision to intervene on behalf of Trump puts them at odds with many other competitors, including Honda and Ford. They had reached a deal this year to follow California's stricter rules for emissions instead of the much weaker federal auto emission standards being posed by Trump. Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte has told William Barr that Italian intelligence played no role in the events leading to the Russia investigation. Barr was investigating an unsubstantiated theory pushed by Trump, that the Mueller probe was launched with the help of a Western intelligence asset working with Obama to spy on the Trump campaign. A federal judge has held Education Secretary Betsy DeVos in contempt for violating an order to stop collecting loans from former students at a defunct for-profit college. Judge Sally Kim also fined the Education Department $100,000 and warned Betsy DeVos she faced jail if she didn't cease it. Money from the fine will be used to compensate the 16,000 people harmed by the DOE's actions. Day 1,012, October 28th. As vociferous protests raged outside, Trump attacked Chicago and its police chief on his first visit to our city. Speaking at a convention at McCormick Place, Trump called Chicago worse than Afghanistan and then attacked Eddie Johnson and our city's sanctuary laws. Trump also claimed the Justice Department will begin a stronger crackdown on violent crime in the U.S. in the coming days. He gave no details. The House of Representatives is to vote on the Trump impeachment inquiry. It will mark the first floor vote on impeachment since Democrats formally launched their inquiry. Nancy Pelosi said, quote, we are taking this step to eliminate any doubt as to whether the Trump administration may withhold documents, prevent witness testimony, disregard subpoenas, or continue obstructing the House. One of Trump's closest advisors defied a subpoena. Charles Kupperman filed a lawsuit seeing guns from a federal judge about whether he should listen to the executive branch, which has invoked constitutional immunity, or to Congress. The House said Kupperman's lawsuit is lacking in legal merit and apparently coordinated with the White House. His fair to appear means he will be held in contempt. Trump is alleged have directed Defense Secretary James Mattis to screw Amazon out of the $10 billion contract to provide cloud computing services to the Pentagon. The contract was awarded to Microsoft in a surprise last week. This claim made in a new book is not a surprise given Trump's hostility to the company. AWS, however, is the unquestioned global leader in cloud computing. Observers say the Pentagon's move could backfire. And the European Union extended Britain's deadline to leave the union by three months to January 31st. The move was widely expected after Parliament failed to agree to Prime Minister Boris Johnson's latest deal. Johnson, who has tried to run his government in a Trumpian fashion, has lost every major vote. Day 1,013, October 29th. A decorated military official who recalled Trump and Ukraine's president made says he was concerned by Trump's demands. Colonel Alexander Vindman told Congress he twice reported his objections to the attempts to pressure Ukraine. In the statement, he said it was, quote, improper to demand that a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen. And he was worried about the undermining of U.S. national security as a result. Binman's sworn statements contradicted Gordon Sondland's testimony. He testified he told Sondland, quote, that his statements were inappropriate. The request to investigate Biden and his son had nothing to do with national security and that such investigations were not something the NSC was going to get involved with or push. Sondland has been suspected of perjuring himself. Trump responded by tweeting, quote, supposedly the Ukraine call concerned today's never Trumper witness, was he on the same call that I was, can't be possible. Please ask him to read the transcript of the call, which hunt? Fox News host, Laura Ingram suggested that Vindman had engaged in espionage on behalf of Ukraine against the United States. Giuliani, meanwhile, accused Vindman of being a never Trumper, tweeting the colonel has reportedly been advising two governments. Republicans joined Democrats in defending Vindman, calling the attacks disgusting and way off the mark day 1014 October 30th house impeachment investigators summoned John Bolton Trump's former national security adviser and two other top White House officials for depositions next week Bolton could be a marquee witness as others have described how he was alarmed in real time about the actions of Giuliani and other administration officials close to Trump Bolton left his position in September amid disagreements it is unclear if Bolton will appear he has signaled he will not appear voluntarily but may appear under subpoena The National Security Council's top Ukraine expert told Congress that an associate of Devin Nunes misrepresented himself to Trump as the NSC's Ukraine expert. Tenesha Patel circumvented the NSC process to provide Trump with disinformation that Ukraine was corrupt and it interfered with the 2016 election on behalf of Democrats. The actual Ukraine expert was told not to attend a meeting following Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's inauguration because Trump's advisors worried his perspective might confuse Trump former Republican congressman repeatedly attempted to get the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine fired for her association with Democrats. Robert Livingston told Croft on multiple occasions that Marie Yovanovitch, the American ambassador to Ukraine, was an Obama holdover associated with George Soros, who should be fired. Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney didn't know about the raid to assassinate Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Mulvaney was at home in South Carolina when Trump tweeted that, quote, something very big has just happened. Day 1015, Halloween. The House voted today along party lines to impeach Trump. The vote sets the rules for a public impeachment inquiry and allows the House to set the rules and call witnesses. Attorneys for the anonymous whistleblower at the center of the Trump impeachment say they have received multiple death threats. At least one of the death threats has led to an investigation by the FBI. A top aide to Devin Nunes has been trying to unmask the anonymous whistleblower by releasing information about him to conservative journalists and politicians. Derek Harvey's goal is to get the name of the whistleblower into the records of the proceedings, which then could be made public. The U.S. federal budget deficit jumped 26% to nearly $1 trillion in 2019. At $984 billion, the deficit is at the highest level in seven years. It will exceed $1 trillion in 2020. Trump's approval ratings continue to drop, particularly in the American suburbs, where just 32 percent of Americans say they now support him. Just 26 percent of women approve of Trump. Overall, under 40 percent of Americans think he is doing a good job. These are the Trump Diaries.
0: Cantratiempo spoke to Annabel Hernandez, author of Los Señores del Narco, an expose of how complicity of the government, police, and military makes the drug cartels possible. Hernandez, who has alleged that former president Vicente Fox was allied with the Sinaloa cartel, also talked about the threats that face Mexican journalists. Cantratiempo airs every Sunday at 9 a.m. Annabelle, ¿cómo estás? Hola, ¿qué tal? Muy buenos días. Estefani, muy
11: bueno. Estefani, Gracias por la invitación.
12: Anabel, estamos muy contentos de tenerte aquí en los estudios de Lompen Radio para pues, para agradecerte por el trabajo que has hecho y, y para que nos platiques un poquito sobre, sobre tu trabajo, sobre tu carrera periodística, eh, eh, los movimientos, los procesos en los que has eh, luchado, enfrentado, trabajado. Pero me gustaría saber un poquito sobre Anabel primero. Anabel, joven, ¿qué quiere estudiar periodismo?
11: Bueno, no, no es, no es un poco así, la historia uh-huh. de la realidad es un poco más, eh, no sé, tal vez extraña, ¿no? Eh, yo, eh, bueno, en primer lugar en mi familia, en mi padre, en mi madre, mis hermanos, ninguno estudió siquiera una carrera de ciencias sociales, todos son ingenieros. Entonces eh, yo lo que había querido estudiar cuando era más joven era leyes, quería ser abogada, quería ser abogada y me imaginaba yo ahí en los tribunales defendiendo personas. Así era como la idea que uno se hace, ¿no? Cómo me veo de grande. Yo me imaginaba así, ¿no? Eh, litigando en los tribunales defendiendo personas. Y hubo un evento en mi vida que cambió eso. Cuando yo tenía Eh, 17 años que estuve un tiempo en San Francisco con una familia de mi mamá, estaba yo estudiando inglés y ocurrió en el 89 este terremoto terrible donde pues se cayó una buena parte de la ciudad, muchas personas murieron, ¿no? Y y lo viví... De un modo dramático, porque sí me había tocado ya el, el terremoto de la Ciudad de México, pero mi, fami- mi familia vivía en la zona conurbada de la Ciudad de México, así que no la habíamos vivido tanto como lo viví aquella ocasión. Y cuando pues todo se quedó incomunicado, los las señales telefónicas no funcionaban, y cuando pude ver, eh, pues lo único que uno veía un poco de televisión, ¿no? Y vi la verdad, yo pienso, sí, sí, estoy casi segura que lo que vi es lo de CNN, que vi a estos reporteros entre los escombros, pero no en esta actitud de héroes o qué sé yo, sino más bien ayudando a las familias a conectarse, ¿no? Buscando personas, eh, conectando, porque muchas familias, como había sucedido en el terremoto de México, no encontraban a sus hijos, no encontraban a sus padres, no no, no, no no no, se conecta, no, no podían localizarse. Cuando yo hice trabajo humanitario, pensé que eso era justamente lo que quería hacer, pero con ese ángulo humanitario era lo que yo quería. Eh...
12: ¿Cuáles fueron tus primeras asignaciones? ¿Cómo decidiste ya una vez que ya estudiaste la carrera? eh, ¿Cuáles fueron tus primeras asignaciones? ¿Qué es lo que cubrías?
11: Mira, el problema conmigo es que eh, soy de ese tipo de personas que piensa que nada es imposible. Eh, Lo pienso ahora y lo pensaba peor o o más intensamente en aquella época. Yo pensaba que yo era capaz de cubrir todo, ¿no? Todo lo que hubiera yo podía hacerlo, ¿no? Evidentemente no, evidentemente para ser para aprender a hacer bien un oficio, un trabajo uno tiene que aprender desde cero. No por más pretencioso que uno sea, ¿no? Uno tiene que empezar desde cero y así fue como yo empecé en el periodismo empecé cubriendo comunidades en, en, en el distrito federal eh, me había una pequeña una pequeñísima página en el periódico Reforma que se llamaba Rumbos y habíamos periodistas que éramos de los más jóvenes porque yo todavía ni siquiera acababa la universidad cuando entré a Reforma y cubría yo las cuestiones comunitarias iba de casa en casa como vendedora de Tupperware que creo que todo el mundo sabe cómo es una vendedora de Tupperware bueno pues ahí, así andaba yo no tocando las puertas no diciendo si tenía alguna necesidad allí en su colonia agua si, si fallaba algún poste de luz ese tipo de ese es nuestro trabajo comunitario pero sabes que eso me ayudó a la posibilidad de de que me abrieran la puerta hasta ahora sí que hasta el perro porque sí porque porque uno se aprende a dialogar con todo tipo de personas sabes con totalmente desconocidos tocando las puertas no y de pronto estos vecinos se dieron cuenta que era útil hablar con un periodista y de pronto estos pequeños insignific que parecían insignificantes porque después yo entendí que no no era insignificante. Ningún tipo de trabajo que se puede hacer por la comunidad para mejorar, aunque sea un tope, aunque sea una luz eh, pública, es pequeño. Entonces, cuando estos vecinos empezaron a ver que estos reportajes tenían tenían efecto, que la autoridad sí escuchaba y cambiaba cosas, es cuando este periodismo eh, vecinal se convirtió en en un periodismo mucho más activo, más fuerte.
12: Y y bueno, y entonces, ¿en qué momento? Bueno, ya descubres tu voz, que es una voz fuerte, es una voz valiosa. Eh, ¿Qué siguió? ¿Cómo llegas eh, en en, en esta trayectoria tan larga eh, a, a, a inyectarte demasiado, no solo en las comunidades, sino a decir... A descubrir e investigar más a fondo. Porque no todos los. Eh, muchos reporteros a lo mejor se quedan en asignaciones, pero tú decides dec- uh, investigar más allá.
11: Yo lo que he entendido es que también tiene que ver un, con la personalidad de las personas, ¿no? Uh-huh. Eh, Y sí, efectivamente, hubo muchos compañeros, y está bien ese trabajo, no digo que esté mal, ¿no? Que siguen haciendo, se quedaron haciendo siempre lo mismo, ¿no? El problema es que yo siempre soy una persona demasiado curiosa y, y muy desobediente. Y entonces a mí, cada vez que mi, que mi editora me, me decía, tienes que hacer esto, a mí me parecía como un poco aburrido. Sí lo hacía, pero me, era una cosa que podía hacer en 10 minutos, en 3 horas. No, ¿Y qué hacía yo con el resto de mi día, verdad? Entonces, yo me puse creativa, ¿no? A, a escuchar a la gente, porque el problema es que la gente que te cuenta lo de la luminaria, también es la gente que te cuenta, mire, ese policía se para ahí y anda extorsionando a las personas o aquí este vecino vende droga o acá este hace entonces uno aprende a escuchar no solo no sólo a ver las pequeñas cosas tener una visión eh, cerrada de las cosas sino a empezar a ampliar y eso fue lo que hice por cada evento que me mandaba mi editora, por cada eh, cosa que te yo asignación mi reportera como reportera siempre hacía más porque veía más cosas porque quería también aprender más. Y así fue cuando, de muy pequeños reportajes, por ejemplo, hice el primer reportaje importante que se hizo en la Ciudad de México sobre la venda de drogas en Tepito. Hoy es todo un cártel que existe ahí, vemos las grandes notas y los grandes operativos. Bueno, yo fui una de las primeras reporteras cuando era, que tenía 22 años que hizo este reportaje. ¿Cómo lo hice? ¿Cómo tuve la información? Porque escuché a los vecinos... Los vecinos estaban reclamando esto. Yo escuché, dije, bueno, pero esto es verdad, porque, claro, podrían estar inventando historias. No, no, claro. es que este vecino, Dije, ok. Yo, autodidacta, dije, me armo en investigación. Yo no sé, yo, en, 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 no sé, no sé cómo sea aquí, o, o tú que eres pegadista, como habrás estudiado, o como te lo habrán enseñado en la, en la escuela, pero a mí nadie me enseña periodismo de investigación. Yo verdaderamente soy autodidacta. Entonces, lo que hice es, hice mi propio esquema, ¿qué hago?, Número uno, tengo que ver con mis propios ojos si de verdad estas personas están vendiendo drogas. Y me fui de encubierta, así como una hija de vecina ahí comprando ahí en Tepito cosas, ¿no? Y sí, fui viendo que en las, ve- en las vecindades iba palomeando de la lista que tenían los vecinos, y palomeando, ¿no? Pues aquí sí. ¿Y de qué hora a qué hora? Porque iba en la mañana y luego iba con mi coche en la noche. Y así fue como pude hacer este primer reportaje que tuvo consecuencias.
12: Mediante tu trabajo informas al Público, eh... ¿Qué tan receptivo es la audiencia al enfrentar toda esta información, datos, cifras, hechos contundentes? Eh, ¿Nosotros, como sociedad, estamos preparados para recibir esa
11: información? Mira, yo pienso que es una, es una pregunta interesante porque, por ejemplo, yo cuando empecé a hacer eh, 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 investigaciones que en México no se hacían, como el tema de, de fiscalizar eh, los gastos de la presidencia de la República, uh-huh. por ejemplo, como Vicente Fox, ¿no? En ese momento nadie lo hacía, pero llegó un momento que los medios de comunicación empezamos a saturar tanto a la gente de casos de corrupción, que es increíble, pero la gente empezó a ser indiferente, ay, ahí van otra ya, todos son corruptos, ok, lo entendí, no me importa más. Pero creo que por un lado es un es un problema de la gente que aún no entiende, por ejemplo, en, en las temáticas que yo manejo, como es la corrupción, de qué manera realmente impacta la corrupción en su cotidianidad. No lo entiende. Pero por otro lado, los periodistas no somos capaces de hacernos entender. Y creo que ese es un defecto muy grande. Creo que creo que hay mucha soberbia en el periodismo, donde pensamos esto es lo que tienes que comerte y te lo comes. Y no te explico por qué. Es como la mamá que dice, te lo comes porque te hace bien las verduras. Bueno, pues sí, pero ¿por qué me haces bien las verduras? ¿Qué tienen las verduras que me hacen bien? que me las tengo que comer. Bueno, no le estamos diciendo a los ciudadanos este periodismo de investigación, este periodismo de corrupción. Sí, a veces tiene información de datos difíciles, no, eh, tediosos, no. Y a veces estas cifras de millones y millones y millones, pues, eh, son complicadas, no. Pero si podemos nosotros encontrar la manera, un lenguaje mucho más simple de hacerle entender el impacto de estas cosas, creo que habrá mucho más sinergia entre periodismo y, per- y-, y ciudadanía. Pero me parece que los periodistas a veces no hacemos bien ese trabajo en este sentido
0: the dark horse collective played a john daly session in studio a this is intern engineered and mastered by ari shellist
11: Yet, are we, are
13: we yet, are we- Chicago was once again named rat capital of the United States, four years running. Yeah. Can we get a...
4: Come on. Everybody in the studio. All our producers.
13: All the... All the all station, the rats we have hired all the station management
4: the station rats
13: um yeah in a ceremony that happened this last sunday warry whitefoot was awarded the golden cheese at the end of a parade <laughs> that went down state street um i've seen footage from this parade it's Lori's first cheese as
0: far as i know and
13: hopefully not the last either um people were were so excited people were were some people were emotionally affected in sure. tears yes um I did not get a chance mm-hmm. to attend myself because I was embroiled in negotiations with um a certain Slavic country. I mean I I saw it. kids were running through the rat maze that they had set up, the giant inflatable rat maze. Ah, uh, it's the costumes, sure. uh, the firework display. The pizza. Oh, band, oh it was, the it was, it was, it was, it was, uh, I, just based on the clips, it looked like an extraordinary <laughs> mm-hmm. event. Um, and yeah, this is the fourth year running that we have become, remained the rat capital of the United States, uh, beating out New York City, DC, and Baltimore. However, there is a shadow behind this. Really? There is a shadow behind this. Oh, wow. I haven't heard of this. Because rat numbers sure. have declined this year for the first time. Wow. We still maintain a wide margin over New York City, but sure. strangely enough, it seems as though as we lower our rat population, the rat populations of New York City, LA, Portland continue to rise. Sure. So I'm gonna, I feel as though we should pivot into the yeah. thoughtful commentary part of this program mm-hmm. and ask ourselves, how do we stop rats sure. from leaving Chicago? Are we get, Are we yet? Are we yet? we The Lumpen Week
0: in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit (laughs) lumpenradio.com.